all else fails, move to Paris for a year. Thank you for listening in to this week's podcast of Graduating and Growth. Today, I'm talking to a wonderful woman named Cindy Park. In this podcast, we talk about a not-so-typical high school experience that led her to not getting into her top schools, where she then took the opportunity to move to Paris for her freshman year of college. We talk about her entire life from growing up to the American University of Paris and then on to Columbia University. She found herself as the manager of the men's basketball team and the editor-in-chief of Columbia's 170th yearbook called The Columbian. Not only did she find her love for law and all of this, but she found so much love in herself. Cindy Park is a Columbia grad, law student, and youth soccer coach. She has a degree in American Studies and is currently in her second year at Fordham Law School. In her free time, she's a volunteer coach at the South Bronx United, where she works with two U11 teams. A self-declared karaoke queen, Cindy is an avid Billy Joel fan. Tune in to hear this week with Cindy and I. Hi, Via. It's so great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. I'm actually just so excited to have you on this podcast today because you are one of the coolest people I've ever seen. Um, And I think it's truly amazing how you just genuinely put so much time and effort into the community and you really give back. And I would love for you to tell the audience just a little bit more about who you are. Yeah, of course. Uh, So as Via mentioned, my name's Sydney. I am from the New York City area. I live right across the river in Hoboken, but I'm currently a law student at Fordham Law School. I'm in my second year. I'm probably going to go into litigation. I have a summer job lined up at a big firm here in the city, which I'm very excited about. Uh, Before that, I was a student at Columbia University where I graduated in 2018. I did a few things while there, which I'm sure will get into. (laughs) And before that, I studied for a year in Paris. I'm originally from Walpole, Massachusetts, or as my dad likes to say, what's between the North Pole and the South Pole? The Walpole. So, (laughs) which is a very bad icebreaker, but that's where I'm from and that's where I grew up and it's a great place to be from, but I love the city with all my heart. That's so funny that you're from like Walpole because it reminds me back where I'm from. I'm actually from this super small town called Wapakoneta. And so when everybody ever asks me about that, I'm just like, let me tell you a little bit about Wapakoneta. Um, And it's actually the hometown of Neil Armstrong, who was the first one on the moon. So that's very cool. That um, is awesome. Where all, all that Walpole is known for is our prison. So, I mean, having <laughs> Neil Armstrong be from Wapakoneta is a lot cooler than that. <laughs> just a little bit. Maybe maybe just a little bit, you know. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on today with me. And I'm so excited for you to talk about your journey and who you are and what led you to you know, where you are today, you've accomplished so many amazing things and you're on to so many amazing things as well as you keep telling me. Um, So I would like for you to kind of start off with, tell me a little about you in high school. What was it like? Where did you go to school? Um, What were you involved in? Who impacted you the most? And so on and so forth. Sure. Uh, So high school was a weird time for me, mostly because... (laughs) Wasn't it for everyone? (laughs) Very much so. Are you a well-adjusted adult if you didn't have a weird high school experience? (laughs) Definitely not. (laughs) But I I went to middle school at a very small middle school. There were 13 of us in our graduating class in eighth grade. So going to high school was such a big shift because I went from having 13 kids in my entire grade to having over 130, which in some instances is still pretty small in terms of a high school grade. But I went to a great school called Milton Academy out in Milton, Massachusetts. Uh, We are the Milton Mustangs, and I'm a very proud alum of that school. But it was definitely a a weird time for me. It was a time of enormous growth socially, academically, uh, because I had to make that shift from being in a very small world to to a much larger one. So it was a dramatic shift for me. As a freshman, I joined the varsity soccer team, which was was a great experience, and I loved playing for them. Um, I love soccer. Right. It's a, it's such a great sport. It was a great place for me to develop a, a community in a much larger pool. Um, and then 
beyond that, I, I went through Milton. I was the editor-in-chief of the Milton paper by my senior year. I spent a few seasons as the girls' basketball team manager, which was fun and led me to several experiences that I returned to later in life and in college. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, as, as a capping moment for me in high school I was I was the commencement speaker for our graduation which was a really nice thing for me particularly because of the mental health struggles that I I went through over the course of my time in high school so being able to speak to that and feel like that moment was a victorious one was really important to me what um what kind of struggles did you go through what kind of impacted you throughout your life in high school that you know led you to overcome it Right. I mean, it's it was definitely difficult. As I mentioned, it was such a difficult transition for me from that small middle school to high school. And I found that I wasn't I wasn't finding the friendships and the relationships that I thought I would. I didn't feel connected to people and I felt very isolated, which is a really difficult feeling for for people to overcome, especially I was a boarding student. So I lived at school. So that made it doubly hard because I didn't have the comforts of home to be with me. So I was really trying to make friends and it just wasn't panning out for me in the way that I thought it would. And so Ultimately, I did have to take time off from school as a freshman. I took the last two weeks of the year off um, per the advice of some of the mental health counselors at school because they saw that I was really struggling and I was in a really dark place and they said she should probably go home for the remainder of the year and I did. And that was really challenging for me as someone who never likes to give up, never likes to give in. Yeah. And so for me, I was like, are you kidding? No, I want to keep fighting. I want to keep fighting. And over the summer, I had a, a, like a mental counselor who told me, she said, you know, there are different ways of fighting. And sometimes taking a break and taping, taking a step back is the best way to do that so that you can come back stronger. And that's ultimately what I had to do. And it really did benefit me taking that extra time off. Even Mm -hmm. if it was just two weeks, it was two weeks that really helped me. And that summer really helped me as well to the point where when I got back as a sophomore, sure, I was still struggling with those, with those issues of isolation and feeling like nobody liked me, Mm -hmm. but I felt a lot more comfortable with myself, which was so important because eventually one of the things that I said in one of my final speeches to the boarding community, um, we have like this weekly meeting called chapel where every everyone in the boarding community gets together and speak and gets to share things. And one of the things that I said to them as a senior, I said, if no one invites you to the party, throw your own party. And that's basically what I started doing from sophomore year onward. Yeah. And I really ended up benefiting from that mindset of saying like, you know what, if I'm not good enough for other people, even if that's just a perception that I have, at least I can be good enough for me and that's enough. So I agree. And I think too, you know, asking number one, asking for help on mental health issues is incredibly important. Even though you're scared to go and talk to your parents about it, just do it. Just do it. So true. So true. Because those feelings of isolation just get worse if you feel like you're, if you feel like you have no one else to reach out to. It can feel really lonely and really difficult. And Mm -hmm. so even if, even if reaching out feels really hard, it's the thing you have to do. And it's a necessary, difficult thing that you have to do. I had a really bad experience at the end of my junior year and basically all throughout my entire senior year where, I would just come home every day and cry myself, cry to myself for like 30 minutes. And I didn't know what was wrong with me. And it was so hard for me to come to terms to just tell my parents about what's going on and ask for help. And when I did, it was amazing. It was awesome. I, I feel so much better, but you know, during that really dark time, it was incredibly hard. So. Right. And I think it's important too, because I remember my parents didn't necessarily know what to do with, because they never dealt with, with, uh, depression and they never dealt with mental health issues um, like the ones that I was experiencing. Mm-hmm. And so I think it was really hard for them because they didn't know what to do, how to best help their child because every parent wants to help their child. And so I think it's it's important to remember that like maybe your parents don't have 
the experiences dealing with this, um, but it's still important to talk to them about it anyways because they'll be able to try and help you find the resources that you need to, to be better and, and get better. Right, right. And nobody's perfect. And I think your journey um, throughout high school and then, you know, some of your successes in college is really show and prove to other people that you can overcome any obstacle that you go through, right? Right. It's And it's so important to remember that every peak you climb, like you're going to look back and be like, that was a piece of cake. I don't know what I was concerned about. And with every, every time you overcome an obstacle, you realize the next one is that much easier to take on. So I know I am. I have these rules that I, I keep on my bed every day or on my desk every day. And it says, number one, slow. well, number two, slowly is the fastest way to get to where you want to be. And then, you know, like the top of one hill is the bottom of the next. So keep climbing. I love that. Yes. Right? <laughs> it's actually um, a Tony, Tony Award winning speech. I forget who won the Tony Award, but ever since then, um, it's just kind of stuck with me. So it, it's true. And so speaking of hills and peaks and valleys, um, let's talk about your growth till about your senior year, because I think. Going into your senior year and that entire year is probably the scariest year, most anxiety-filled year for a high school student. Um, so going from you know everything that you've overcame and all the sports that you did and activities that you're involved in, what happened when you had to do well when you had to decide um, where you were going to go to college? That that was a difficult moment for right? me. I'm a, oh. I'm a twin. Um, oh my goodness. So, and my twin sister is, is probably one of the smartest people I know. She's, she's currently doing her PhD at Columbia, um, in some crazy biochemical engineering science type wow. of thing. So she's really, really smart. Uh, and so it was really hard for me because I, have been comparing myself to her for many years in my life. Mm -hmm. And luckily we've come to a point where we're both old enough and we can appreciate each other's accomplishments without feeling like we have (laughs) to to compare ourselves. Yes. All the time. (laughs) Sisterly love. (laughs) Sisterly love. We love to see it. It's so, Ah. we're just pushing each other to be better. Right. 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 Oh, you're doing this. Well, I'm doing that. (laughs) I remember one very poignant moment, turning point in my short-lived violin career was when we compared music sheets of music and her notes were smaller than mine which I thought meant that it was a more complicated piece because the smaller the notes the more notes and therefore the more complicated the piece and I was still on the large notes and I quit I quit violin the next day I was like nope if she's better than me at it then I don't want to do it oh (laughs) no yeah which basically has defined which defined most of our childhood and that and that carried on and mm-hmm. up and through the college admissions process because your parents know where their kids got in so there was no way of hiding it from me and so she got into a bunch of schools and very very successfully so and many schools that were very good like you were talking Stanford's and the Yale's and the Columbia's and she eventually chose to go to Stanford um, and played lacrosse there as well but I remember it was very difficult for me because I was like, I think I'm a pretty good applicant for these schools. I think I'm a good person. I believe in community. I do all these extracurriculars. I'm on the soccer team. I run the paper. I sing in choir. Like I thought I was a pretty good candidate. And then we were coming home from March vacation and I was mm-hmm. getting off the plane from Cancun and I what a wonderful my, vacation what a, it was it was a really great vacation um, <laughs> really fun up until we get home to immigration and I'm standing in line uh, waiting to to go through and I finally open my phone and I take it off airplane mode and I see all of these emails coming in that are all saying, Dear Miss Park, we regret to inform you. And as soon as I read that, I was like, okay. Tears didn't get start in there. streaming. Didn't get in there. <laughs> and of course, they were all, they had been sent, spaced out, but I had gotten them all in one foul windfall. And I was so upset with myself. I think I was so disappointed in myself, in the whole process. I ended up getting into a few schools, but they weren't schools that I was excited about. They weren't schools that I felt 
proud of getting into. Not that they weren't great schools. It's just they weren't the schools for me, which I right. want, I really wanted and was looking right. for. Um, and so what ended up happening was one of the schools that I really wanted to go to, George Washington University, said, we can't let you into our freshman class to come to campus in D.C., but we can offer you a position in our inaugural class that's in partnership with the American University of Paris. And I, as someone who does not like to take risks, I am very much by the book. And I, do, I don't like going places. I'm not an adventurer by any stretch of the imagination. I was like, well, I don't want to go to France for my very first year of college. That sounds terrifying. I don't want to live in an apartment in God knows where with people I don't (laughs) know, having to cook for myself. That sounds terrible. And eventually my parents convinced me that that was a really good idea. And I was probably not convinced it was a good idea until I came home for the very final time and was finally like, okay. You guys were right. That was a pretty good year. <laughs> but that was after a whole year of being there. Um, and it ended up being a really good decision. So and that's something that I kind of remember a lot whenever I get things like whenever I get rejected from a job that I thought I wanted or whenever something doesn't go my way. I remember getting all of those rejections and getting this opportunity that didn't seem like a great idea at the time. And it ended up being one of the best cho- decisions of my life. Right, right. I mean, oh my gosh, when you hear somebody, and to you, you say, I I never expected to ever go to Paris or, you know, even live abroad for an entire year. I mean, sometimes like that's a girl's dream, right? Right. (laughs) That's a a dream. Like, I wish I had that opportunity or I wish I would have known and figured out a way to make that opportunity happen for myself. Right. And it goes to show that there are people, you know, everyone has different ideas what the ideal, what your ideal looks like. And I think that's really important to remember because like my dream job is different than some other person's dream job. And my dream living situation is different from someone else's. And I think my reservations about going to Paris is someone's absolute dream of going to Paris. So it's very interesting because I definitely did not want to go. (laughs) And that's okay. And, you know, the thing is, is that if you're listening to this podcast right now, if if Paris is your dream, then heck, figure out the way to do it. Figure out the way to go. There and if are it's... programs out there and they are so willing to send you abroad for the year and then you have guaranteed admission to a school that you like um, or you can choose to transfer, which is what I did. <laughs> right, right, right. But before we get into that, I want you to tell yeah. me a little bit about your transition from life in the U.S. to your first year of college in a foreign country, just basically at all. Like what happened? Yeah, I mean... I mean, your parents dropped you off at the airport and then you just kind of, you know, went on your own or... Yeah, I mean, leading up to that moment in time, I... (laughs) Because I remember when I went to college, I like tears streamed, giving my parent, my dad a goodbye hug. Oh my goodness. My parents bring this up a lot. They loved that I was studying in Paris because... They love visiting Paris. So oh, they were like, they were like, oh well, we just we're just gonna go to France for the weekend to visit Sydney, of course. Like no other reason. We just are gonna go visit our daughter who's yeah for, for there. two weeks. You're yeah, we're just gonna exactly. yeah we're definitely just gonna jet over there. No other reason. That's, <laughs> and I was like, so you guys just selfishly pushed me to go to Paris so that you right. have a reason. And they were right. like, no, definitely not. <laughs> but leading up and. And to that point, I I was very nervous because I didn't speak a lick of French. So that was the first thing I was very concerned mm-hmm. about. And what ended up happening was that my mom's friend from spin class, her <laughs> husband. We love friends from spin story. class. Uh, yeah, we love friends from spin class. Her husband was a professor of French at Boston University and was willing to take me on as a summer as like a summer student. And so almost, I think it was like three times a week, I would drive over to his house and sit at his kitchen table and he would 
very sternly tell me that I was pronouncing words wrong and <laughs> verbs to the point where by the end of the summer I, I could understand a little bit of French and I could speak enough to get by. Of course, people in Paris, if you if you sound like you're not French, they will immediately start speaking to you in English, which is very funny and which ended up being a really like a badge of honor moment for me when I finally spoke in French and someone responded in French. I was like, I did it. I have I accomplished it. everything I needed to accomplish. <laughs> um, and it was very funny because after I came home after that year, I saw him again by pure coincidence. I saw this professor again standing on like the train platform going into Boston as I was heading into my internship. And I was like, ah, bonjour, professeur. And he looked at me and he was like, oh my gosh, Sydney. And we started talking and I was telling him all about using French in Paris. And I said one word and he went, oh la la, you messed that one up, didn't you? All the time. And I was like, what? <laughs> no. I thought I finally got it. You're like, I, I worked am. so hard for this. I was like, I spent a whole year trying to get this down and now you are nitpicking me. Um, which was well-deserved, but still. It was a, it was a funny moment. Uh, but yeah, after I spent the summer studying, it was time to go. So I had all my documentation in order. My parents actually came with me to, to Paris, which was really nice. They didn't just drop me off at Boston Logan and were like, good luck, uh, which <laughs> would have been really bad. I can but, only imagine carrying all that luggage. Yeah, I actually, I only had one large duffel and a backpack. And then my parent, and then my mom had a large suitcase with her too. So I tried, we, we kept it pretty minimal because my mom was like, Sydney, whatever clothes you'll need, buy them in Paris. And I was like, okay. Wow. <laughs> Thanks mom. I guess I'll buy them in Paris. <laughs> like if you insist. But so we, we went on the plane and we, we got over to Paris. Um, and actually over the summer beforehand, my dad and I spent a few days there too to get like a feeling uh we walked right. around uh AUP's quote-unquote campus it's integrated into the city so it's actually like not a campus itself it's just buildings in different locations around Paris which is really quite cool and what does Once AUP you know mean oh AUP is the American University of Paris uh, and so everyone just calls it AUP because that's <laughs> a cool way to say it <laughs> but it's it's a great place to be and there's um all of the buildings are scattered and you kind of find them uh, and then figure out where you're going which is both nerve-wracking and exciting but then when we once we got there I settled into my apartment I had three roommates I was and the apartments were found by the school for all the first year students and so I was with other freshmen uh, my roommate's name was Amiko, and then I had two other roommates who were both men. Uh, one was Marco, and he was from Serbia, and the other was this young man named Alex, who uh, was from New York uh, and had been on Broadway, which was amazing to find out. That's <laughs> absolutely incredible. But what we a had small a very, world. Yeah, we had a very interesting little little apartment group. Yes, uh, you did. <laughs> everyone had different, uh, let's just say, everyone had different avail abilities to contribute <laughs> to the apartment and the upkeep of the apartment. Um, so, I mean, I learned how to unclog toilets really efficiently, which I think <laughs> was was my my crowning moment a very That's, important thing yeah. to have in the back of your pocket exactly <laughs> but yeah that was and that was my first few weeks in Paris just figuring out where I was walking to um it was really lovely because when school started it was in August and people in France in August don't really do anything so trying to go open up a bank account was near impossible because they were like we're on vacation till September and I'm like that must be really nice but I need to put my money somewhere instead of keeping it on my person at all times but, that's scary but also yeah, okay <laughs> but it was really quite nice and my apartment was in the 15th arrondissement and it was in this lovely portion of town we lived right next to this street that had a bunch of stores and shopping on oh, in it amazing. um and my walk to school was probably the nicest walk to school I've ever had because I would cross it I would cross um 
the Eiffel Tower and I would pass Casually. by the and all that kind of stuff. And I could walk along the Champs-Élysées and go to class. Like it was a very, it was a very nice place to be. It wasn't so nice in the winter where everything's gray and sad, but like those first few months were beautiful out and it was just a really incredible experience to be there. Oh, I'm so envious. <laughs> just thinking about casually, you know, walking to class, passing the Eiffel Tower. No big deal. It's totally normal. Completely normal. To- totally normal. And I remember there's this one, there was this one bakery on my walk to class. Oh, and- the croissant. <laughs> And I remember I would go in every day. And then one day I made the fatal mistake, the fatal mistake of passing by the bakery with a different bakery's baguette. <gasps> Never, no. ever, ever do that. You will, break, you will break your favorite baker's heart if you do that. You cannot do that. And I did it because I didn't know. So the next day when I walked in to order like my usual, she was like okay and I was like what did I do and she was like where'd you get that baguette yesterday and I was like you remember that are you kidding me oh my gosh (laughs) oh my gosh so I if I can give one piece of advice living in Paris never ever buy a different baker's (laughs) baguette that's (laughs) or at least if you're going to don't walk by the bakery exactly don't get caught with another baker's baguette that's that's the key there we go (laughs) so tell me a little about you know what what did you learn from living in Paris for a year and like your favorite memory about it oh that's a good question because I think I learned a lot more about myself than I think most people learn in their first year of college mostly because I learned that first of all I learned that I was really good at bake at cooking parmesan uh encrusted chicken because that was like my go-to dish <laughs> if you could see my face right now on this podcast you would just <laughs> you could, if only you could see my face right now <laughs> you are welcome over for dinner whenever but... all right all right 12 hours to new york let's go <laughs> but i think the thing that i learned that was the most important the thing that i i carry with me was like something that i started to learn in high school but really came to realize as I was getting older and really came to realize and while studying in Paris and it was that I was okay being alone with myself and I think that's something that a lot of people can struggle with is being okay with yourself and being okay sitting mm-hmm. with yourself because I went on a lot of solo trips whether mm-hmm. they were to different countries or just to walk around the park. And I realized that I was so wanting for so many years to be surrounded by people always because that noise kind of kind of stifled out those bad thoughts that I had about myself and, right. and everything like that. And it took a long time for me to be willing to like sit down with myself in silence and sit down in myself and be alone and be like, you know what? I'm okay doing this. I'm okay being by myself. Um, and I have a few great memories of doing that. One of them was I went to this Michelin starred restaurant by myself for lunch. Uh, and I sat there all on my own and, and I had a lovely time. I talked in French to all the waiters and the chef came over and asked me how my food was. And it was a really lovely experience where I don't think I, up until that point, had the confidence to be willing to walk into a restaurant and be like, yeah, I made a reservation. Yep, it's just for me. I am oh. here alone. <laughs> oh, I completely agree. I remember when COVID first started, well, when COVID was, well, when the restaurants were opening back up here in Ohio, I, I started like running all around downtown and I was basically completely living on my own. And, you know, when you live on your own, you just have to say, okay, you know, like I'm okay with living alone. And I remember the first time I ever took myself out to lunch just by myself. You know, I sat outside and, you know, ordered lunch and stuff. And it was kind of, I wouldn't say it's liberating, but you, it's an experience like no other. Truly it is. Yeah, it really, it really is. Um, But a funny memory that I have from Paris. Oh no. (laughs) Most of my stories I feel like have been so sad. So uh, I'm like, dang, I was a really sad teenager and young adult. Um, but one of the funny stories that I bring up sometimes, and my mom 
doesn't let me live it down oh, was no. I started, I almost started a grease fire in my apartment. <laughs> um, oh my gosh. I was trying to heat up oil on my stove so that I could make French fries because uh, what else is one <laughs> going to eat while in Paris? Nope. And I had the oil and I forgot about it. So it was heating up on my stove in a pot with a top on it. So it was heating up really, really hot. And all of a sudden I smelled smoke and I was one of the only, one of two people, it was me and my roommate Marco, the Serbian. And I was like, oh my God, the oil. And I ran into the kitchen. It's smoking everywhere. I was like, holy cow. And my dumb I should have left it covered and removed it from heat to stifle the fire. But instead, my thought process was open the cover, which was not a good idea because then as soon as that, as it hit more air, I ended up causing it to light on fire. And I was like, holy mother of God. And so I had this (laughs) pan that had like a fire, a grease fire in it, which don't put it out with water. If you ever have a grease fire, that's not how you put it out. <laughs> but I saw fire. I thought water. I ran it. Un- I ran it over to the sink and I turned on the water. As soon as the cold water hit the grease fire, it shot a column of fire up to our ceiling. And then I, I put the top back on, stifled the fire and put it out the window. My roommate Marco is like, what is going on? And I was like, I almost burnt our apartment down. And he just, he does, he like looks up at the ceiling and sees this dark gray explosion mark. And he was like, you know what? I don't want to know. I, and that it was a seat for many, many months. That was a secret between me and Marco. And I was like, you tell no one. And he was like, there's one thing Serbians can do is keep secret. And I was like, thank you, Marco. <laughs> After that, he just like walked back into his room. Basically, he was like, "You have you have this covered," and I was like, "Yep, it's covered." And he's like, "Okay," and then he left. <laughs> oh my goodness gracious! So that was one of the more memorable scarring moments uh, from living alone in Paris. <laughs> that now everyone gets to know about. So you must have had the best French fries in the world there. <laughs> Especially the ones obviously made in your apartment, or maybe you didn't Actually, ever make I, again in after your apartment. That, I never made them again. I refused. I was like, no, I will go buy them. I will spend the 15 euro to go buy them. <laughs> yeah, sounds about right. Sounds about right. So, going from that experience in Paris to now what you you transferred to Colombia, right? Yeah. So, so what was, was that? Yeah. So, uh, the Paris program was through George Washington University. Um, and after studying in Paris, I was like, you know, I really want to go to, I want to be in a city. Now, Washington, mm-hmm. D.C. is a city, surely. But I was like, I want, I want like a city city. Like, I right, want the right. city. Of and course. I thought, like, where do you go after Paris? And I was like, you know what? You go to New York. You go to New York City where dreams come true. And I was like, so I should try and go to New York. And I applied for admission to Columbia. Um, My dad is a very proud Columbia alum. And I was like, you know what, I can. And my twin sister, coincidentally, had rejected an offer from Columbia in order to go to Stanford. So he was like feeling a little hurt about that. So I was like, I'll go to Columbia. I'll be your Columbia kid. How about that? And so I applied. Thankfully, I got in. And I ended up going as a transfer student, which was really fun because – I got to meet a bunch of other transfer students and we had this little crew of us. There was like 30 of us maybe um, of kids that all transferred from other schools. And we all had had like our crazy freshman year experiences. Mm -hmm. And we came to the point where we're like, yeah, we're just here. And we're, we're fine with that. And it was a really great group of kids we stuck together for most of freshman year a lot of us remained friends throughout the rest of our time at Columbia and it was a really great community to be a part of that's so cool and then when you went to American University of Paris what did you study and then what did you study um after like when you transferred to Columbia yeah I mean at American University of Paris since I was a freshman I took a lot of like general classes that Mm -hmm. were required for me to take one of my favorites was this um, Paris through its 
Paris history through its architecture and it was half Ooh. walking tour and half lecture course and we and we got to be in a class with this fabulous professor who uh, art history architectural professor who knew everything about everything and it was a really cool experience to get to to speak to hear from him and learn all about Paris through yeah. all of its really old old things that it has going on for it which was really quite neat. And we also always got to get into buildings before anyone else because he had his little like <laughs> certification that of allowed course him he to did. do that. <laughs> and it is super weird to be in a building that and like touch stone that was put there before the United States were even a thing. Like that right. is a pretty crazy feeling to feel that connected to the past. Um, so for a while, actually, I thought I was going to do like art history because I was so impressed by this man. And I was like, yeah, I'll do art history. I'll be like an art historian. And my parents were like, you're going to do what now? Right. <laughs> <Wait a second. laughs> it's like, you can't just send a kid to Paris and then not expect them to come back and think they're going to do something artsy, right? Right, right. Naturally. But, yeah. And, and so when I got to Columbia, I actually, I had a little bit of a pivot because I was like, okay, well, now I'm in the real world. Like I'm, I'm here in the real world. I have to do some, some kind of real world stuff. Um, and for me, real world meant science and math, which I have never been good at. Convinced that, like, <laughs> Nor have I. Yeah, I was like convinced that going to Columbia, I was like, this is where I'm going to be good at science and math, which proved not. Now is the time. <laughs> <laughs> now, now is the time. Here is the place. I am the person. And that none of those things need <laughs> to be true. Um, <laughs> and so when I got to Columbia, I was like, I'm going to try and do a biology major. I'm going to try and go pre-med. I'm going to be a pediatrician. Um, and then I got my first quiz back for chemistry. And I was like, I am not going into biology. I cannot be a pre-med. I definitely will not be a pediatrician. <laughs> um, and so I pretty quickly decided that the science track was not for me. And I was like, well, now I have to really think about what I really want to do and more importantly, what I wanted to study, because I was a sophomore at this point in time, so I really had to focus on what I wanted to declare my major to be. So I started thinking about the things that I enjoyed, um, less the things that I was good at and more the things that I enjoyed. Because mm -hmm. I think if you're going to spend all this time working towards a degree, you want to work towards something that like you enjoy doing and you enjoy putting time into and you're passionate about. So I figured, I was like, you know, I really like writing. That was something that I really liked to do. And I really liked ana like the analysis part of writing. And I, and I liked critical essays. Um, and so I kind of, as I was browsing, looking at different degree options, I came across American Studies. And I was like, this could be for me. Because it was, it was a, the type of liberal arts degree where it had a focus to it. It was based on American history, American literature. It was very Americana focused. And I was like, well, I can kind of make this whatever I really want it to be and focus it on what I find interesting. So before we get into that, tell yeah. our audience what a liberal arts degree is. So that way they sure. understand it a little bit more. Yeah. So a liberal arts degree, there are a few different kinds of degrees that you can get in college and they kind of come in buckets. You can get, you can get like an engineering degree, like a bachelor of science, um, or you can do like a bachelor of arts. And most of those are the liberal arts degrees and liberal arts are anything from the English arts. And, uh, they cover a wide variety of like the soft subjects is what I would call them because they're a lot mm -hmm. more about, um, quantifiable skills and things like that than any of the engineering or sciencey sciences are. Of course, like you can get your bachelor of arts in chemistry, if you really wanted to, I guess, but <laughs> that's what liberal arts are. Um, they're basically like a catch-all phrase for all of the cool other things that you can think of. That outside of STEM, outside yeah. of STEM, yeah, exactly. Think more I about feel. like history and um, politics and political right. science. Those kind of things are liberal arts, right? Exactly. All of the all of the. I call. I think they're. More I think cool. they're the cool degrees. I think they're cooler degrees. Um, some of the STEM people might disagree with me. Most <laughs> people in my family might disagree with me. I call STEM people, but <laughs> in my personal but that's okay. opinion, liberal arts is the coolest. <laughs> cool. No, that's amazing. So yeah, so American studies. So how did you create it to be your own kind of major? Well, so I looked at the the offerings that the American Studies Department offers and. 
basically they had a bunch of different requirements and this goes for many, many kinds of degrees. They, they give you certain requirements that can be fulfilled by a variety of classes that are offered different, during different semesters. And so I looked at what requirements I needed, and then I looked through the classes that would satisfy those requirements. And I kind of just picked and choose, chose the things that interested me. Um, I had a great class in 2016, in the fall of 2016, about, it was about media and the presidential election. And it was this great course where we just sat down and we dissected different media coverage of the presidential candidates. And we sat down and we got to look at all of those different things and analyze them from, from what we tried to do as a neutral neutral perspective, which was really interesting, especially given the context and the climate around the 2016 election. And then another class I got to take was this uh, history of judicial interpretation where we looked at the Supreme Court and all of their different decisions and how that has changed over time. And that was something that I took with me to law school. Um, and then another class that I got to take with the president of Columbia University, President Lee Bollinger, and he teaches a whole class on First, on first Amendment rights. And he sits you down like you're in a law school class, cold calls you, uh, which is when you're not expecting <laughs> to be called on and he just calls your name. Oh, that's the and worst. Grills you. <laughs> it's terrifying. Um, I always sat in the front row and tried to like glare him down to deter him from calling on me and it worked I never got cold called uh I I yeah because you're one of those people who sat in the front row I mean if you're if you're ballsy enough to sit in the front row I mean geez Louise I did the reading wink (laughs) 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 call my bluff President Bollinger I'm I'm in the front row let's go (laughs) I love that so did that like kind of start your interest to now you being in law school Yeah, I think that's where it all really started. And it all kind of plays into one another in this fun thematic way where I started taking classes that interested me. And then as I was figuring out what profession I wanted to go into and what industries I wanted to go into, I was like, well, let's go back to that very original and basic conversation I had with myself with, which is what do I enjoy doing? What do I, Mm -hmm. what do I enjoy studying? What am I passionate about? And what kind of academic areas do fascinate me? And I kept coming back to the study of law and how interesting it was and how that, how you use writing in creative ways, even though a lot of people are like, lawyers are such bad writers. And I'm like, no, they don't have to be. Like, we can be really good right, writers. Right. And we can do all of those interesting things um, and analyze really nuanced topics in creative ways and break them down in ways that other people might not be able to. And so I really thought that that was an interesting path for me. And so ultimately, a lot of those classes, I think, played into the decision to go into law school and, and pursue that career path. That's so cool. <clears throat> I know, like, that's, I find that to be so interesting, because my father, surprisingly enough, he enjoyed music, but he ended up becoming an attorney. But he still loves to do music and stuff. And, you know, he plays back at home. But um, I, I think law is just one of those professions that don't get recognized enough for the work that you put in. You see you see it on the media, but then you don't see the amount of behind the scenes that goes into all the reading, all the writing, four caseloads and stuff. So I, I right. think that's so cool. Yeah, everyone sees like the trial court attorneys and they're like, wow, right. that's cool. And you're like, that's about 5%, maybe less than that of what lawyers do. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. So outside of that, I mean, your entire Columbia experience just seems, oh my gosh, absolutely amazing. So cool. But of course, you can't go through college without having some involvement on campus, right? And <laughs> don't laugh at me. But... um. So what clubs interested you at school? Like whether if it was from like AUP or just Columbia specifically, what kind of? Yeah, I mean, at AUP when I was, when I was there, I actually, I was much more focused on taking the opportunity to like travel around Europe. So I wasn't really involved in student groups at AUP. So I was like hopping on trains and planes and going to different places and doing my own kind of thing. And then when I got to Columbia, I really was like, okay, this is the place that I'm going to graduate from. And this is the place that I want to try and build like something of a a foundation for myself. Exactly. Um, And I was like, well, where can I start with that? And as a former athlete, I was like, 
athletics are a great place to start. But I wasn't an athlete at that point in time. I mean, I was, I was just a student. I had given up soccer after I graduated from high school. And I was like, well, how can I be involved? And I remembered back in high school, I was the girls' manager of the basketball team. And I was like, well, I know how to use like the very, like the technology that goes into basketball. Like the, I knew how to run the clock um, and how to do all of the different things that you do with mm-hmm. the clock. And so I walked into the basketball management office at our athletics department and I was like, hey, I heard you guys were looking for managers. I did that. I would love to join you. And I was like, I'm a transfer student. I, I'm new. <laughs> and they kind of just, they were like, have you, what have you done in basketball for? And I was like, I was a manager in high school. I ran the clock. I filled water bottles. I was, you know, all that cool definitely not nerdy stuff (laughs) definitely nerdy but so cool (laughs) and I and I basically told them that and then the director of basketball operations was like all right show up at noon on Thursday I was like okay and I showed up to the gym and I walk in the gym expecting I thought I was applying for the women's basketball manager position and I was not. It turns oh, no. out as I walked in Thursday <laughs> at noon and I walk into the gym and like it was one of those movie moments where I felt like everything stopped as soon as I like opened the gym door. And I was like, hello, I'm Sydney. <laughs> I'm the manager. And there are all these like seven foot tall men and they're all like sweaty. And I was very Are they just like staring you down? I feel like this is like a scene from High School yeah, Musical that's where Gabriella comes like. in <laughs> during Troy Bolton's basketball practice. Like that's what I imagine you doing. That's what I like to re like. That's how I like to reimagine it. <laughs> as- <laughs> and and now I'm like, all right, Sydney, keep it together keep it together and I just like I sat down at the little table with the clock and I was like you know this you know this clock you know how to do this I'm like trying to talk myself up I look like a crazy person as I'm sitting there and I'm like you've got this like don't worry about it girl. And, and I ended up doing it for the whole practice and doing it really quickly and the head manager at the time uh, he was a he was going to graduate that year and so they were looking for someone to come on for as a transition and he was like wow like, you're actually okay at this. And I was like, well, I didn't lie when I talked to the director of basketball operations. Like, I know what I'm doing. Uh, and so I ended up doing that for, for the next few years of being at Columbia. I ended up, and after that year, I, I took on the role as the head manager, and I was one of the few f- women um, in D1 basketball to do that in, for a men's basketball team. Um, and it was always really funny going to places like play at Villanova and we would go to the Villanova and everyone would turn to my assistant manager and be like, uh, where would you like this stuff? Like thinking he was the head manager. I'd be like, actually, you can talk to me about that. Like I'm the person you talk to. And like the look of surprise on their face, because I was like this lanky kind of awkward, uh, woman, setting up benches and carrying big loads of things and just like kind of giving directions to other people. I think yeah. it was something that was new, especially given that there are so few female Women. head managers in NCAA basketball. That's so cool. Like that is literally <laughs> so cool. I wish I had the guts to do that. I think that if I walked into the men's basketball court here at Fifth Third Arena in Cincinnati, they would just all stop and stare at me and I would probably just walk out. probably not but (laughs) I mean a great story from from doing that and I think it just goes to show that like you know there are spaces that women oftentimes feel uninvited in and there are spaces that women can feel like they don't belong in and sports can be can be not always can be one of those places and so for me it was really overwhelming uh to do that to walk in and be like you know and and realize that I was like being kind of scrutinized and then be like, no, you've got this, like you, you can do this. And I remember at the end of my very first year, the director of basketball operations came up to me and told me this story. And he said, you know, after that first practice, the head coach sat us all down in his office and we're like, do we think this, this young woman's going to work out? Like, I don't need her being in the basketball court, like distracting our players or something like that were to happen. I don't want that to happen. And, um, everyone was like, I think we can make this work. And all the coaches were like, you know, what let's give her a shot and the head coach was like all right I will give her a shot she can stay on for the first month and we'll see how it works out she can come on one road game we'll see how it works out and if it works out we'll keep her 
And then at the end of the whole season, after we, I had gone and traveled with them, I actually went to Kansas with them um, over that first season. At the end of all of that, he he pulled the director of basketball operations aside, and he was like, "Sydney is phenomenal," and I. I'm so happy that we kept her on because she is one of the best head managers I could ask for. And I was like, that's, that's incredible. That's for sure. Heck coach. Yeah. <laughs> the crazy thing too, is that the fact that he sat, your coach sat the men down and said, Hey, do you want this woman, this, this woman to be a part of our team? And all the guys were like, yeah, sure. Like that's okay. But the fact that they asked that is just, it's so interesting, but you know, and I mean, I understand the hesitation yeah. introducing like this young woman that you don't really know into a whole group of guys. I was oftentimes, except for we had a trainer, our trainer who I love with all my heart. She now works at UMiami. Um, we were often the only two women out of our whole crew of like 32 people. There were two of us on the bus. Right, that was right. it. Uh, and it, so it can't, it can be very intimidating, but it just goes to show that like, you know what, I'm going to walk into this space and I'm going to take up space mm -hmm. and I'm going to show you that I can do it. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> right, right. If you're in the room then you deserve to have a seat in it, I That's love that. Sure. That's so cool. <laughs> All right. So you were a part, you were the head manager of the men's basketball team. And then tell me about your role in the Colombian. What is the Colombian? Yeah, that was something that came later for me as a student at Columbia. And my, I grew up with a family that really treasured and treasures uh, family photos. Uh, it's actually something that every year we collect photos from the year and we put them into, into the family calendar. It's like a big thing if like, oh, that photo is going in the calendar. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh. Like wow, a big you made it. to be in the calendar. <laughs> um, and so every year we put that together. And so photos for me have always been super important. And I've always loved, like, I don't take, I don't generally take photos of like things. If I go and see things, I take things, I take photos of people with those things because it's right. far more important for me to remember those people than it is to remember the place itself. And so I found out that the Columbian, so the Columbian is Columbia University's yearbook, and it's for all of the undergraduate colleges uh, except for Barnard. So the Columbian covers the School of Engineering, uh, the School of General Studies, and, the, and Columbia College, which is where I graduated from, the Liberal Arts College. And I found out that there was an opening for the editor-in-chief for the 170th edition of the Columbian. And I was like, well, this is the year that I graduate, and I want to make sure that this yearbook is the best it could possibly be. And who better to assure that it's up to my <laughs> standards than me? <laughs> Correct. Exactly. So I, I applied for the job. Um, I got the job. I think I was one of the only people who applied because it was a big responsibility and it was very time consuming. Mm -hmm. And I ended up doing, I ended up doing most of the work myself, admittedly, but it was worth it because I had the chance to build something that I was very proud of mm -hmm. that spoke to my time at Columbia and spoke, and I tried to make sure it was representative of a lot of people's time at Columbia. One of my favorite parts of it was I started like a photo project that ended up being like very nerve wracking for me because even though I'm a pretty outgoing person, I don't, sometimes I get very nervous, like talking to people and asking them for things. And so do one I, the, right? <laughs> I it's hate like, asking, can, you know, you're kind of like, hi, my dad brings this up when I was little. I used to hate going into Dunkin' Donuts and like ordering food because I didn't like talking to people. Um, and now I love Dunkin' Donuts. So Dunkin' Donuts sponsor this podcast, but <laughs> actually, <laughs> but, um, I had this whole project and it was called, I am Columbia. I am dot, dot, dot. And I gave people the option or I am Columbia 2018. I am dot, dot, dot. And then they could fill in what represented them. What did they feel they wanted to share? And That's I got incredible. so many good I got so much good feedback from that and I got so many people who were so willing and excited to participate and it ended up being great because people were like, oh my God, I'm going to be in the yearbook. Like I, right. like this really special photo of me is going to be in the yearbook because yeah, you can have your headshot in there. That's all well and good. But like, there's a photo of me just sitting on low steps and there's a photo of me sitting on the quad and there's, and it made it just that much more personal. That's awesome. That's so great to hear. And 
I, I don't know. People don't understand the amount of time it takes to build something like that. I mean, it took a lot of time. There were a lot of hours that got sunk into the Colombian. <laughs> that's so cool, though. I mean, after that, now you're on your way to Fordham Law School, right? Well, you are in Fordham Law School now. Yeah. Tell me about took, that so um, far. Yeah, I took a year off. And this is something that I suggest to anyone who's considering law school. Take a year to go and work in a place that speaks to the legal industry, whether that's at a public defender's office or um, a public service organization, anything like that, something that you're interested in, to see what the real practice of law looks like, because I think some people don't necessarily. So it's not what like that looks the TV like. show Suits? Unfortunately, not. I mean, oh, I wish. Come on. <laughs> I love Suits. <laughs> I admittedly have never seen it, but I do remember a clip went around many years ago when I was actually working at my firm, when I was working at Skadden for the one year I was there, and it was a clip from Suits, and one of the attorneys walks in, and he goes, I'm from Skadden, Arp, Slate, Mayor's Lab. We're better than you. I'm better than you. And all of us were like laughing because we thought it was so funny that like, oh, scatting got it's a actually you. suits. <laughs> and I was like, secretly, it's all of us little legal practice assistants. <laughs> but it was, it was a really, That's it was so an interesting cool. experience. Um, it definitely showed me what life inside a law firm looked like. Uh, there were moments where I was like, I don't know if I'm really into this. But even when those moments came, I remembered that like being a lawyer and being a legal practice assistant are two very different things. And so I had to remember that like I won't be making binders for all of all my career, but I should be paying attention to what's in the binders and like what what legal work is going on behind the scenes that I don't necessarily see. And once I started focusing on that, I was like, okay, law school is still making sense to me. And then after one year at Skadden, I took on a job in the business development world for another firm called Sullivan and Cromwell. Uh, They're down by South Ferry. And I loved everyone that I worked with. And I ended up going to law school part-time for that first year and balancing a job down in South Ferry. And then I would take the train and shoot up to 66th Street and go to law school at night, uh, which was a really fun balancing act <laughs> if, if fun is an appropriate that's word adulting right there that's adulting <laughs> and it was a really great way to do I I personally believe it was a really great way to do my first year of law school because I was surround unlike unlike what I perceive to be the 1L experience in a lot of cases where it feels very competitive um, and people are like gunning for that top spot when you're a part-time student and you are with other people who have other priorities, whether that be a job or a family, they are not trying to gun gun for you. Like they're not trying to take you down. Everyone in my experience was very supportive, which I really appreciated because ultimately, and I've heard this from lawyer practicing lawyers, ultimately you want everyone to like you when you leave law school, or at least not have a negative idea of you. Right, right. Because those people are going to be the people you work with in the future. Those are the types of people that you're going to want to have professional network connections with. So it's really important that even if it is competitive, you want to keep it friendly because those are the people that are going who those that is your professional network yeah and you're gonna be surrounded by them whether you like it or not and you can eventually be working with them whether you like it or not so exactly (laughs) and that's so incredible and then I remember you telling me that you had an internship with the New York Supreme Court yeah I've done two of those uh so I last summer that is so cool oh my gosh so I love I love it because people who are not from New York and even some people who are in New York don't necessarily know this but the New York State Supreme Court is actually the trial level court of the New York State system so it's the it's the lowest it's the like the beginner court in terms of where you start a litigation and where you first bring a lawsuit and then you and then you can bring it up to all the way to the court of appeals which is at the very top of that hierarchy 
political court ladder. And so I worked, I've worked at the New York State Supreme Court over last summer in uh, the summer 2020. And then this past spring semester, I've been working there as well. Um, I work for a very specific part of the New York State Supreme Court called the Commercial Division, because New York is a hub for commercial litigation because so many businesses do large transactions here. So the New York State Supreme Court has a lot of jurisdiction over these transactions. And so anyone who brings a claim in New York State Supreme Court in the commercial division, the price tag of that claim has to be greater than $500,000. So we're dealing with generally a lot of money at stake. And it can be a little nerve wracking because part of my job as a court intern and part of any court intern's job is to like read through the papers that the, that the parties have submitted to convince the judge one way or the other. And then I basically have to look at them, analyze the legal issues, and tell the judge what my thoughts are, which is scary because oh my goodness, as a second-year law student being like, well, they're bringing a claim for fraudulent inducement, but under New York state law, and the judge is listening like, okay, okay, yep. And he knows all of this stuff, but he, but generally the judge is making sure that you know it. And he also wants to hear your thoughts on the specific facts in the case and how they apply to the legal standard. It's been a really great learning experience. I've both of the judges that I've worked for, and I think this goes across the board for most judges who take interns, is that they recognize that this is a learning experience and they recognize that it's an opportunity for them to impart legal wisdom on the next generation of lawyers. <laughs> as like soft and as, um, as that sounds, but it really is, it's really is such a great learning and teaching opportunity because you see a variety of cases you see a variety of legal issues, and you get to hear the perspective from respected legal professionals about those issues. And it just informs your studies and it informs your practice so much more. And you probably will not get that kind of mentorship in any other capacity or any other place because so many lawyers are just so, so busy that they don't necessarily have the time. But if a judge is taking on interns, like he or she wants to take the time to do that. And so I have nothing but positive things to say about being an intern for for the state court here. That's absolutely incredible. Now, thinking about your entire journey to who you are now, <laughs> let's like harness back to when you were in high school. I mean, looking at that, looking at that girl to this woman now, what would you say to a girl struggling with some of the same things that you did? You know, yeah, that's a really great question, um, and I'd like to kind of tie it into kind of the thought process that I was made aware of in one of my classes in college. I took this class called The Art of Nonfiction, and it was a whole class about how do you build a narrative around, how do you build a narrative, basically, around, like, facts, and how do you build a narrative around things that have happened in real life, because you don't get to control the facts in that scenario. You, you have to see them as they are, because it's nonfiction. It's based on reality. And so sometimes when I think about my journey and where I came from and where I am now and where I'm going, I like to think about the fact that, like, we all have the opportunity to write our own stories. And we all have the opportunity to do that. And, and even though we don't get to be in control of all the circumstances that we find ourselves in, we do have the ability to see the positives in those circumstances and to see the lessons in those contexts. So I think what my advice would be is like, be okay with your own story and be okay with going with the flow of that story because you don't know where it's going to go and you don't know what kind of lessons you're going to learn along the way. So as you're crafting this story and as you're thinking about the bends in your own history, like think about the fact that you are going to sit down for a podcast with a lovely young woman someday and you're going to get to talk about all of these things and what kind of things are you going to want to talk about and emphasize and how did all of those things build together to become the person that you are? I love that. Oh, so cheesy. <laughs> so cheesy. We love uh, it. <laughs> uh, a good friend of mine once said I... I said, oh, I'm so cheesy. And 
he said, you know, that's good. We need more cheese in the world. And I was like, you're gosh darn right. We do need more cheese in the world. It's so true. It's so true. <laughs> Just makes um, it more interesting, I think. Right, right. <laughs> so I have to ask, because this is super important for all my girls dreaming of having their dream job. What is your dream job? My dream job. Okay, so my real life dream job based on law school and things like that is I hope someday to be a partner at a law firm and just like, and I t- I've told people this, I want to be the partner who is really nice, but kind of makes everyone a little scared, just like a little bit, like people are <laughs> a little intimidated, like they might pee a little when I walk in a courtroom, like that's the person that I want to be, like not scary because I'm mean, but scary because I'm good at what oh, I do. Oh yeah, <laughs> we, yes, we love those lawyers, <laughs> I love that, exactly. That's, that's Yeah, that's, so that's my dream job is to make people just a little scared because I'm really good at my job. <laughs> I mean, hey, if you got it, flaunt it. Exactly. And I hope to someday get it so I can flaunt it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then my last question for you before we wrap this up is, if you could give one piece of advice to a young girl dreaming of creating her future, what would it be? I would say go for the unexpected opportunity. Because just as I ended up in Paris, just as I ended up at Columbia, just as I ended up on the men's basketball team, and I guess just as I ended up pretty much wherever I tend to end up, <laughs> like go for the unexpected opportunities because those oftentimes carry with them the greatest adventures. I love that. I love that so much. Great way to end the podcast. <laughs> I'm glad. Hopefully we were recording this whole time. <laughs> We were. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. And you can follow Sydney on social media at? At Miss Five Burrows 20 NY. Yes. And check out her story as she actually is competing for Miss New York as a part of the Miss America Scholarship Organization this upcoming spring slash summer. Very, very excited to see her do that and accomplish so many amazing things. So thank you so much, everybody. And I will see you all soon. 